Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 again this morning, if you have a Bible. Uh, Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. This morning's text is, is the climax of Mark's gospel. For 15 and a half chapters, Mark has been building to this moment. And I want us to remember what Jesus' mission is. According to himself, back in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are, of course, familiar with the term ransom. It is the payment that is required to free a prisoner. Jesus uses this term here, and it gives us a little bit of insight into the significance of his life. Even if we aren't given to the, uh, even if we aren't given the whole picture, uh, he's more than just a, a teacher. He's more than just a miracle worker. He's more than even just a, a king. He has come to pay a ransom. And in saying this, Jesus reveals a number of truths about himself as well as about us. First, it reveals whether we realize it or not, it reveals something about ourselves. It reveals that we are trapped in bondage, that we are prisoners, and as such, we are unable to free ourselves from the things that hold us in bondage and in chains. Paul tells us what it is that holds us captive when he's writing to his friend Titus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul tells us that before Jesus, we were all held captive, that we were slaves to our passions and to our, prisoner, or to our pleasures. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that we're not only slaves, but that before Jesus, we were also dead in our sin in Ephesians chapter 2. We didn't just need someone to come and and give us a a little bit of a touch-up or or improve our lives, just clean up a a couple different parts of our lives, but instead that we need someone to come and rescue us from slavery, rescue us from death itself. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts this in one of his famous quotes. Uh, He came not to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. And that is why Jesus comes as a ransom for many. But it doesn't just reveal something about ourselves. It also reveals something about Jesus. He doesn't just come to pay the ransom. He comes because he is the ransom. That perhaps mysteriously, if we're not familiar with the gospel, that the only way for him to free an enslaved humanity is to make a great exchange. And here in Mark, we get the account of Jesus' death When we see this great exchange here, this ransom is paid. At long last, Jesus' mission has been accomplished. This is the theme uh, that undergirds all of these verses. Remember, Mark and other Gospels, they aren't primarily a, a biography. They have a purpose. And Mark tells us what his purpose is all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The first words that Jesus speaks on his earthly ministry, he says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark's hope when we read this book, and, and my hope as we hear this sermon, is that we would see the kingdom has come. 
and that after seeing the kingdom has come, that we would respond with repentance, that we would turn around from going our own way, and that we would begin to believe in the gospel, or we would believe in the gospel more fully, that the good news that is on display in this passage, that we would respond with repentance and with faith. And with that purpose in mind, repentance and faith, Mark doesn't just tell us about Jesus' death. He highlights four events that take place at the death of Jesus that he records in these verses. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to focus on these four events that Mark highlights in his account of Jesus' death. And as we do that, I hope one thing is abundantly clear from this text. It's about Jesus' mission, and it's also about you. It's about me. It's the most important thing that Mark has been building to throughout his gospel. It's what we have been working to in the 60-some sermons that we've gone through in Mark so far, and it is simply this. At the cross, your ransom was paid if you trust in the Son of God. At the cross... Your ransom was paid. My ransom was paid if we trust in the Son of God. In the death of Jesus, we see the key to repentance, the key to belief, the key to freedom, the key to new and abundant life. And it's simply this, at the cross, your ransom, my ransom was paid if we trust in the Son of God. And that truth echoes throughout these verses. It's the banner of this text this morning. With that in mind, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to God's Word starting Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Father, as as we read those words, I um, I'll, I'll just start saying I, I feel unworthy to preach on such a holy moment. It is hard to look at the horror of the cross to consider the final moments of your son's life to to consider that the the crushing weight of of the world's sin that the weight of my sin was placed on his shoulders. As John declares, "Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world," and I ask that. That would be true for each and every one of us in this passage, that we would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that you would use this text to lead us to greater repentance, that you would use it to lead us to greater faith or faith for the first time. Help us to fix our eyes upon your Son, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned that this text highlights uh, four events that take place during Jesus's death. The first one is found in the darkness of verse 33. It says this, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole lands until the ninth hour. Recall what we have seen from Mark up to this point. The chief priests and the religious authorities, they've decided to bring Jesus 
to Pilate as soon as it was morning in verse 1 of chapter 15. This would have been about 6 a.m., around the same time as, as sunrise. In verse 25, we see that Jesus is put on the cross at the third hour, or about 9 a.m. And around 12 p.m., around noon, when the sun is the highest in the sky, the day is supposed to be the brightest, Mark tells us that something different happened. Darkness, not light, covers the entire land. Some have, have speculated that this is a, a, um, a natural phenomenon. It's a solar eclipse or, or a storm or, or something similar. Mark, Mark doesn't seek that type of explanation. He just sees that this darkness is something that is completely, utterly supernatural. It is something that is tied to the crucifixion. In the Old Testament, we oftentimes see that darkness is a sign of God's judgment upon humanity. So in Egypt, in the time of, of the Exodus and, and before the, the Passover, we see that darkness is one of the plagues that God sends upon the people of Egypt. It's a sign of judgment upon them for how they are treating his people. The prophets tell us of the day of the Lord, of when God will return with judgment and darkness is a part of this. Amos says this, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So here we see that as the Son of God hangs on a cross, the darkness that occurs here around noon is a sign of God's judgment. It's a sign that God's judgment is coming. The first theologically significant statement of this passage, the, the, the truth that Mark is trying to communicate to us is this, darkness covers the land as a sign of God's judgment. That's the purpose of this darkness, this darkness that God's judgment is coming. And I want you to just imagine the, the, the eeriness or the, or the horror of this moment for three inexplicable hours, when it's supposed to be the brightest part of the day, darkness covers the land. And I wonder if the, the taunts of the passers-by, if they begin to fade away, if the, the religious authorities, if they begin to get nervous. And I mean, they, they surely knew their Bibles well enough to know that, that darkness was a sign of, of God's judgment. It was an act of God. Uh, and, and maybe they began to get nervous and maybe something supernatural is happening here. For three hours, darkness covers the entire land. As a sign of God's judgment, the question we have is judgment for whom? Who is this judgment intended for? Is this, uh, is this darkness a sign of God's judgment upon humanity for nailing his perfectly obedient, innocent son to a cross? Or is it a sign of God's judgment upon his son? This ransom for many who will carry the sins of the world. We can look later on in Mark, and he gives us the answer, I think. Second event Mark highlights in this text, Jesus' words in verse 34, that he is forsaken. Let's uh, pick up in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. 
So here we are, after three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, the language of his heart, his native tongue. Jesus would have known Greek, he would have known Hebrew, but the language of his day in that area was Aramaic. And so Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 22, as we're going to see, which would have been in Hebrew. He takes that and he, he brings it into his life and he quotes it in the language of his heart. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the crowd, they hear this cry of Jesus and they hear him say, Eloi, or my God, and they think that he is saying Elijah or Eliyahu. There was this common Jewish superstition that Elijah would save those who were in mortal danger if they were righteous. And so here is Jesus, he's on the cross, the crowds are waiting with bated breath to see if Elijah was, was going to come. And someone runs off and they, they grab a sponge and they stick it on a, a reed and, and they fill it with wine, sour wine, hoping that this will help Jesus to endure a little bit longer. So that way everyone can see if, if Elijah is going to come to Jesus' rescue. But no one comes. No one comes. No one answers. Why? It's because the judgment of God, the darkness of verse 33, has fallen upon Jesus. That's what this second event tells us. Jesus is forsaken. Jesus is, is forsaken as judgment is poured out. This judgment is poured out upon him. Last week we saw that there were a number of allusions in Mark chapter 15 to Psalm 22. A number of the things that take place in Jesus' life as he is being crucified point us back to Psalm 22 and this righteous sufferer. This is the clearest one yet. Jesus cries out. This is Jesus who has been silent since the beginning of Mark chapter 15. When he is speaking to Pilate, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you have said so. And then Mark tells us, or, or doesn't record any of Jesus' words after that moment. He, he focuses on the silence of Jesus until this moment when Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Jesus, facing the wrath of God, is for the first time, the only time, he's cut off from his Father. The holy God who cannot abide sin in his presence at this moment takes his beloved son and turns his face away. He, is, he has seen his, his beloved son who has taken on the sin of the world. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him who, uh, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But here, as Jesus becomes sin, he is forsaken by his Father, and so Jesus cries out in anguish. But this is not a cry of hopelessness. It is not a cry of hopelessness. He still is referring to God as my God. He's still declaring implicitly his trust in his Father. It, it remains secure. Jesus, who has wrestled his will into obedience of his Father's will in the garden, will remain faithful on the cross. This is Jesus who has predicted his death time and time and time again in Mark's gospel throughout his ministry. He knows that this moment will soon pass. Jesus has left his father's side to become a ransom for many. He knows his father's plan. He knows that this is a part of it. A crown and glory await, but 
It doesn't lessen the hell of this moment. Make no mistake, I don't say that word flippantly here. That's what this moment is, hell. Jesus is experiencing God's wrath as it is poured out upon him. The son is separated from the father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the son cries. Do you see the answer? You see the answer of why Jesus cries out these words of forsakenness? It's because the beloved son says it, so you never have to say it. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. As Jesus dies, two momentous things happen. Let's look at each in turn. Verses in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I want to use... Um, the language of one of our family's favorite children's books. Um, actually, the, the children who are in children's worship are going through this uh, story with Pastor Stephen this morning. It's from The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And this book starts the way all good stories do. It starts at the beginning. In the beginning, God creates a garden. Everything is good. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. It's a place with nothing bad, nothing ever sad. And best of all, God is there and people get to dwell with him in his presence. But then people do a terrible thing. They do a terrible thing. They decide they don't want to do what God said, that they would rather sit on the throne instead of God. They want a world where God is not in charge. And this, of course, is sin. And at that moment, God's creation breaks. And people are no longer able to live with God anymore. And so God sends people out of the garden. Yes, this is a sign of judgment, but also for their own protection. Because if they were to be in God's presence as sinful people, then they would die. Now, thank goodness God isn't done. God has a rescue plan to dwell with humanity once again. And so he has the people of Israel build something called the temple. This is a place where he would live. And I want to pick up specifically with the language of the garden, the curtain, and the cross as it describes this. In the middle of the temple was the most wonderful place in the world, the place where God was. With nothing bad and nothing sad, it was very exciting. But then God told people to put a big curtain around this wonderful place. It was a big keep-out sign. For hundreds of years, the temple curtain reminded people that it is wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. This curtain is a clear reminder to anyone and to everyone that God is unreachable, that God is untouchable. No one is allowed to go beyond this curtain except for one person, the chief priest, and they can only go beyond this curtain on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And the amount of work that they have to go through to enter into God's presence is absolutely astounding. We looked at this like six, eight months ago as we were working our way through Mark. Tim Keller, in his book, the, the Son, or Jesus the King, gives us some insight into what type of pressure, preparation was needed from the chief priests if they were inter, as they were to enter into God's presence, as they were to pass the curtain on the Day of Atonement. He says this, a week beforehand, the high priest went, it was put into seclusion, taken away from his home into, in, into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he would, he would not accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, 
the day of atonement, he bathed his head, to, uh, bathed from head to toe, and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies, and he offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or to pay for the penalty of his own sin. After that, he came out and bathed completely again, and new white linen was put on him. And he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sin of the priest, but that's not all. He would come out a third time, and he bathed again from head to toe, and they dressed him in brand new pure linen, and he went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of the people. When the high priest went before God, there wasn't a speck on him. He was as pure as pure could be. And that's the lengths that humanity must go to in order to possibly go beyond this curtain. One out of the seven-some billion people on the face of the earth can only go in one of the 365 days a year after the most stringent of ceremonies in order to enter God's presence only for a brief period of time. That's what you have to do in order to enter into God's presence, to go beyond the curtain that separates us from God. This curtain is a sign of God's holiness, and it is a sign of our sinfulness, and it is a sign that there is an impassable gap between the two until the moment of Jesus' death. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Curtain was massive, over 60 feet tall, almost as thick as your balled up fist. It was more a wall than it was a curtain, and at Jesus' death, it tore. It ripped, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. The ransom was paid. And once again, for the first time, since the rebellion in the garden, humanity has a way to enter into God's presence, not by cleansing themselves inwardly and outwardly, not by covering themselves in the blood of bulls and goats, but in covering themselves in the blood of the Son, the ransom for many. Perhaps surprisingly, this isn't the first time that God does something like this, where he rips down a barrier in order to dwell with humanity once again. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark uses the same word that he uses here to talk about the veil being torn, the temple curtain being torn. He only uses it two times. The other time is at the beginning of his gospel and Jesus' baptism. As Jesus comes out of the water, it tells us this, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. At the start of Jesus' ministry, we see the heavens ripped asunder. It's the exact same word that is only used here to talk about the temple curtains being torn into. God rips open the heavens in order to announce that his Son is now dwelling with humanity. His rescue plan to rescue a, a broken and, and sinful creation has now begun. And here, at long last, we are seeing that come to fruition. The curtain being torn reminds us that Jesus' death gives us access to God. In a way that was never before possible, the death of the Son in our place gives us a way to dwell with God once again. And the torn curtain is proof. There's one final 
piece of evidence in this passage of something slightly different, and that is the final event that Mark highlights in this passage in verse 39. It says this, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Here on the lips of a pagan soldier, we at long last have the truth of who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. In a way that the Pharisees didn't understand, in a way that the religious leaders did not understand, in a way that not even the disciples could understand, in a way that no one understands, this pagan executioner at long last makes the claim of who Jesus is. This right here is what Mark has been building to. Remember how Mark starts his gospel? Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first thing he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For over 15 chapters, we see evidence mounting. The truth is is slowly being revealed. We have seen it on the lips of demons, but we've never seen a human utter this truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is revealed in some mysterious way as the Son of God in his death. This text tells us that Jesus, Jesus utters a loud cry before he dies. This would have been a surprise because normally someone who is being crucified wouldn't have the strength to say anything, let alone to utter a loud cry. Mark is very clear in verse 37 that Jesus is not uh, succumbing to death, but rather he is giving up his life, just as he said he would. And in the moments of Jesus' death, with how unique it is, with this darkness and the fact that he utters a loud cry, God is doing something in the heart of the centurion. The centurion has not seen this before. And there's a lot of debate out there about whether this is a, a statement of faith that I believe that this man is the son of God, the one who is going to take away my sin, that he is my ransom. Or if this is just a a statement from a Roman about a great man, that this man is like a son of the gods. This text allows for either translation. Mark chapter 15, as we saw last week, is, is all about irony. It's very possible that this centurion doesn't even understand what he's saying. In a way that we can understand because we have the rest of Mark's gospel. But I think, I think that this is a statement of true faith. In a book that is filled with failure from disciples, we finally have true faith from the most unlikely of places because this man, unlike all of the disciples, he sees, he gets that Jesus' identity is tied to a cross. The true majesty of who Jesus is, the Son of God, it remains veiled. We can't fully understand who he is until we get to the cross. And the same thing is true today. That the reality, the truth of who Jesus is, the majesty, the beauty of who Jesus is, is not truly fully revealed until we see the cross. This is the confession that Mark has been building to since chapter 1 of of his gospel. And it reminds us of this, that the cross reveals the Son of God. The cross reveals the Son of God. Or to use the language of our sermon series, there is no king without 
the cross. At the cross, your ransom was paid. If you trust in the Son of God, like this Roman soldier. That's the concern of this text, and that's the only response that is possible. The ransom has been paid. And if you are someone who is, is not yet a part of, of Jesus' kingdom, do you see that this is an invitation to you? An invitation to enter into the kingdom of God, that the veil has been torn, that you can enter into God's presence now for the first time since the world broke in Genesis chapter 3 because of what Jesus has done for you. And the way you do that is the exact same way that the centurion did with the words of faith, that this man is the Son of God. But this isn't just some sort of intellectual statement of truth, of recognizing in our heads of who Jesus is. These words are tied to the events or the event of the crucifixion. They are tied to the fact that Jesus is a ransom who is paying for your sin. And to confess these words is to believe both that you need a ransom— that you are trapped in slavery, that you are dead in sin and you need someone to save you and that Jesus is the one who can save you, that he is the one who has rescued you, no strings attached. The ransom makes a way for those who are not a part of God's kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom, to enter into his kingdom, but it also assures those who are struggling while they're already a part of Jesus' kingdom, here's the beautiful truth of this ransom that has been paid that we can so often forget. It isn't just a one-time payment. It's not just a one-time payment. When you come to Jesus, he ransoms your entire life. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. One thing that I have been reminded of time and time again this past week is that no matter how much I may feel as though I have failed God and, and that I don't deserve his grace because I take advantage of it day after day after day, the reality is he has already loved me at my worst. To say that I feel like I don't deserve the grace of God, is I mean, it's a completely true statement. It's like the definition of grace, that we do not deserve it. Romans 5 tells us that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. If, if he loved us then, Romans 5 uses language that we are, we are enemies of the cross. We are hostile toward God. And if, if Jesus loved us then at our Worst, he won't stop loving us now, no matter what we do. The ransom at the cross assures those who feel condemned, whether it's because of a stagnating faith or, or whether it's repeated failure, the same sins just can continue to crop up. It reminds us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because at the cross your ransom was paid if you trust 
in the Son of God. There's one other response to this text, and it's hidden underneath the surface. The story of the ransom has to be shared. The story of this ransom has to be shared. The story of what Jesus has done for me is something that he has charged me to share with others. We cannot keep it to ourselves, but we are called to be ambassadors, to go to the ends of the earth, to, to tell of this kingdom of a king who is, who is on a cross. As Jesus is on the cross, he's experiencing the wrath of God on the cross. He cries out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? That's, that's verse 1 of Psalm 22. I said that this is a cry of heartbreak, but it's not one of hopelessness, and that's because of the rest of the psalm. Jesus knows the end of the story, but he also knows the end of the psalm. Consider how Psalm 22 ends, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship. People like this pagan soldier will come to faith. But how will the nations worship at the throne of God if they have not heard of the ransom? The story of the ransom must be shared. And it starts with us. It starts with us. At the cross, your ransom was paid. If you trust in the Son of God. Will you tell the world of that ransom? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. That you have made a way for us to enter into your presence once more. Jesus, help us to be a people who trust in that. Whether it's for the first time, we're not a part of your kingdom and, and you're calling us to enter into your kingdom, whether it's a continual reminder for those of us who are in your kingdom, when we struggle when we sin, that, that our ransom has already been paid, that if you loved us at, at our worst, you, you won't stop loving us now. And help us to be a people who see that this story of the ransom, of what you have done for us, must be shared. That you have charged us in the gospel with a commission, with a mission to reach people, to share the gospel, to share the good news with Jesus, of Jesus with people who don't know Jesus. And as we consider scripture and um, we can just latch on to the promises there that all of the nations... 
Maybe not everyone, but some from all of the nations will come to the throne. Help us to be faithful. Help us to serve and to to see opportunities to, to share when you make them available to us. Help us to be a people of the ransom, a people of the kingdom, who proclaim the cross because of what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.